0: Hi everybody, welcome back to the Uniquely Better Life podcast. My name is Chase, I'm the Community Director here at the Willow Center. This is episode number five. We've got our friend Chris who's going to share his story here in just a moment. But first, a recovery tip. So this month's recovery tip is you need to get regular exercise. And the reason you got to get regular exercise is because of the link that exercise has to the balance of our brain chemicals. So when you're in active addiction, the system that controls endorphin release and dopamine release is hyperactive and it's attached directly to the input of whatever substance of choice you use most often. Whenever you use that substance, your brain and bloodstream will get flooded with endorphins and dopamine and set up what's called the dopamine cycle, which adds to the craving and the addictive part of active addiction. But when you do regular exercise, and I mean like actual exercise, not just a light walk, we're talking like getting the heart rate up, breaking a sweat, you actually have a natural endorphin and dopamine release that is similar to substance use dopamine release. So it's almost like exercise becomes a healthy substance replacement in a way if you build it into your weekly or daily routine. So that's your recovery tip. Get some regular exercise and that'll lead to natural endorphin and dopamine release at a much more manageable level for your brain and bloodstream. All right, here comes some intro music then we'll dive in. Here we go. Welcome, Chris. Episode five, Uniquely Better Life Podcast. Thanks so much for coming. We appreciate you. Thank you, Chase. Why don't you go ahead and just dive in? What is your story of hope and recovery?
1: So, I kind of I kind of a weird approach to the way I share my story okay. um, of recovery. Uh, it's a pretty typical story, right? I grew up without a father figure. Um, mom tried to get father figures to the house. They weren't exactly positive, sure, right? Um, you know, a lot of self-loathing suicide attempts, you know, a lot of kind of cookie cutter things that you hear a lot inside of rooms, inside of AA, inside of recovery groups. You hear a lot of these stories. And what I, what I think is important about that is that it's not unique, Mm. right? Um, For me, it's kind of beautiful in the fact that there's a lot of connectivity there, right? You can stick me in a room with anybody from anywhere and, we're able to have a conversation yeah. and a meaningful conversation because a lot of our background is the exact same. Mm-hmm. So I don't really like to just sit down and be like, well, this is who I am. This is where I came from this. Cause it's, it's just more of the same. Sure. Right. What I find the impact of that is, is that addiction really doesn't care right about your race, your mm. creed, your background, who you choose to love it's unfortunately us that care about those things, right? Right. Addiction is an all-inclusive situation. It's an all-inclusive yeah. disease. It just it doesn't, doesn't discriminate yeah. on who suffers. Yeah, if, if you're rich, you're poor. It it doesn't care. Yeah. It it'll get you if if you um, allow it to get you. Right. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my approach to to my story. Is I, I'm so much more focused on what life is like now the things that I do now or the people that are in my life now and those connections and those relationships and the depth of them, as opposed to what got me here. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really valid point, right? Sometimes I think even in recovery, uh, there is almost a hyper focus on the hardship that led to recovery, right? Which I, therapeutically speaking, there's sometimes some value in digging into that. And, um, you know, really trying to heal some of those past traumas, but continuously reliving them, continuously bringing them up. is almost like ripping a bandaid off a scabbing wound, you know?
1: Every time you rip it off, it causes the wound to need to heal again. And then you just rip it off and it needs to heal again. I completely agree with, so me personally, I I don't think you have to be an addict or an alcoholic to do the 12 steps, right? I think that the 12 Mm -hmm. steps are a viable option for literally every person on the planet, right? Because I think that they are very psychologically sound. I think that they are uh, a modality to live a better life. Period. Hmm. I, unfortunately, I just happen to be, you know, an alcoholic that found them that way. Sure. Right. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of credence in what you just said. Of course, you should dig into those things, right, in a therapeutic fashion or through doing the twelve steps of the sponsor. Right. That's the that's the purpose of that. You dig into those things. Step four is. To me, and I haven't done it yet, full disclosure, I've not, I've not gotten to step four yet, but I'm very excited to get to step four. Absolutely. Um, Because a lot of people get scared about step four, right? Taking an inventory. I was talking about this with Shelby the other day, and she kind of contradicted what I'm about to say, and she was right. Um, But for me, when I look at step four, I don't necessarily understand everyone's fear, right? Mm -hmm. I can kind of see where they're coming from. But for me, in my mind, right, I know everything that I've done. Yeah. it's It's... I can't deny that. So the act of writing it down, then step fiving and then step aiding it is very therapeutic because you're going to unburden yourself yeah. of these things, right? We deal with a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. I mean, to this day, I will be sitting in my car by myself and I will think about something that I've done and be embarrassed at my behavior. Sure. And I feel that embarrassment Kind of build inside of me, and that shame build inside of me, and thinking about the person that I was when I did those things, when right. I when I committed what I consider to be really bad acts mm-hmm. upon other people or myself. Um, now, used to be when I had one coping mechanism, when I felt that shame, that guilt, that embarrassment, I would just drink it away. Right. Right. But now I'm faced with myself. I have to deal with those things. I say it all the time. That for me. Right. The not the not drinking portion of sobriety is the easiest portion for me. Yeah. Because everything else that causes me not to drink is what's truly hard. Mm -hmm. The therapy, the work, the recovery. It is hard work. Right. It's not just like,
0: oh, I choose this. I get to choose it every (laughs) doggone day.
1: Right. Every time that I feel bad about something, I have to remind myself that my reaction to that feeling is pretty much okay. Right. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to feel things. Right. You know, prior to now, to this last sixteen months, you know, when I felt something, I might feel it for a little while, but I knew a good way to get rid of that feeling. Right. To escape it easily. Yeah. Escapism was my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I, I found out in a session with you um, that one of the other things that I was looking for was emotional release. Right. right? Because I'm so. You know, I'm such a typical man, right? <laughs> right. I'm such a typical man. Um,
0: we're taught by society. We're not allowed yeah. to have feelings, let alone show them. Goodness gracious. Exactly.
1: Well, and I've always said one of one of the most, some of the most toxically masculine ideologies I've ever been taught were taught to me by women, mm. right? Um, one, and that's because I was raised by women and I've been around women. It's not, I'm not saying that my mother instilled talks. Tox- she was very open. She tried to get me to feel. Sure. Right? But more so from like girlfriends and otherwise yeah, or just general society and, and, and the view of men and what men are supposed to act like, conduct themselves as, right? right? And that's that kind of stoic, unfeeling, unable to tap into their emotions. And mm-hmm. that, to me, that's what truly toxic masculinity is, right? Absolutely. It's the, damaging yeah. both, both to ourselves as well as to our surrounding relationships and communities. The, the false sense that in order to be a, a quote-unquote man, that you have to be able to just shoulder your burden, go through it without having any kind of reaction to it, and not express your emotions is fallacy.
0: Yeah, I agree. So in regards to those feelings that you are mentioning, that shame and that guilt, do you feel like there is a difference between shame itself and guilt itself in
1: recovery? I, I would say that probably clinically speaking or definition-wise there's a difference, but I don't experience, experience them differently they feel I've, the same they feel the, the exact same to me i understand that they are a different thing right yeah. but that's not what my brain tells me mm-hmm. my brain tells me that shame is guilt and that i should feel shame for feeling guilty right mm-hmm. they, they just they go hand in hand right and it's something that i struggle with i have horrible responses to guilt because i feel incredibly guilty about anything that i do wrong right um and now i have to correct those behaviors yeah um, as opposed to drinking those feelings away
0: so what are your coping mechanisms then what are the what are the healthy things you've learned in your your period of sobriety now
1: so you know it's funny cuz i get asked that a lot right and i have a hard time answering that question every time i get asked it because okay. it's like cuz i'm still learning about myself right i'm still sure. learning how i cope i'm 16 months sober right and congratulations thank by you. the
0: way that's no small
1: feat man right, 16 I, months yeah i just i got to get over that 18 month hump Oh, dude, you're almost yeah, there. Almost, we're, we're right around the corner. I'm just out of pause. So, get um, yeah, post acute withdrawal symptom, yeah. I'm, I'm just cruising out of that, which is which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the using dreams have Can stopped. Only imagine,
0: and, and it's, it's a huge relief to get rid of some <laughs> of those symptoms. It,
1: it really, really is. Um, but yeah, so even at this point, I, I'm still learning about myself, right? I'm still okay. learning how to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason I have a hard time answering that is cause like, well, what, what am I actually doing? Right? Like I'm trying to be introspective. I'm trying to think what am I doing every day that's making this work? And one of the biggest things that I do to cope with things is that I am unabashedly honest about everything. Yeah. Right. I can with, attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. That's something that I respect about you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, good, bad or ugly, it helps me cope with how I'm feeling to just be honest about it. Yeah. Um, Which I know necessarily honesty isn't a coping mechanism, but it's I use it to cope. Sure. So it's become a coping mechanism. And it's attached to your feelings, right? Right, exactly. So um, practicing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about this all the time. A lot of people have heard the phrase practice mindfulness, right? And I thought about this the other day. It's like, painting or playing an instrument right you have to practice those things to become proficient at them absolutely and i think i've i've had a vast misunderstanding of what the phrase practicing mindfulness meant i thought it meant just you know meditating or thinking no it literally means to sit down and make an, an active effort to practice, to the practice. Ideolo- yeah, the ideologies of being mindful. Yeah, um, man,
0: and it's so it's so much harder than they say it is, right? Right. Even in my own story, meditation's played a big role, and I remember the first time I ever tried to sit down and do it, and I was like, "Man, I'm thinking about anything else <laughs> like aside right. from like what am I feeling right now? It's just like what do I got to do next, or like what's on my to do list, or yeah, uh,
1: you know." And and it's funny because last night, for example, I was driving home from mm-hmm. a meeting and I had a friend in the car, and I got a bit um, spicy about a topic, right? Sure. Which I don't really do, you know, and and, um, everyone knows me as a very patient, calm person, right? But I was getting a little loud about Mm -hmm. the topic, right? And I was not getting a little agitated with this particular person. As a matter of fact, it was in defense of this particular person. Sure. But in the middle of me getting worked up, I said, I said to her, I was like, I have no idea why I'm acting like this right now. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to go ahead and calm down and, and think about this for a second. And what that, self-awareness. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, and, it, and it hit me right after that. I was like, okay, I'm being really defensive because I think something that somebody did to you within the room could be detrimental to your sobriety. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with that. Yeah. So I'm, t- I'm getting a little too worked up about it. So I just need to take a second. I, I apologize for my, my conduct yeah. just now um, because that's not the right way to handle that. Mm-hmm. I'm just being, I'm being defensive of you um, and that's not the right way to deal with things. And I respect that so much right. because that's not ignoring the
0: emotion or denying it, mm-hmm. right? You allowed yourself to feel it and express it even if you could have expressed it better, but then had the emotional <laughs> right. attention and, and mindfulness to then reflect and be like, oh, that feeling's okay. I could have expressed it better. Here's where it's coming from. Like, that's huge. Yeah,
1: and, and, and that does not come with, with no small amount of work, right? Right. That's, it's taken a lot of, of work. See, I, and something that I've had to learn about myself is I've kind of always had these skills, right? But these skills have kind of been trained out of me. Mm. But, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's taken a lot of work to get to that point, right? It's definitely not a, a passive type of behavior. It's yeah. very much a concerted effort, right? I just caught myself in the moment getting upset and in the moment I couldn't identify why I was acting the way I was. Mm -hmm. So I literally just hit the brakes on the conversation so I could figure out why, why I acted that way. Um, But yeah, that's, and that's that, that mindfulness, you know, that is a new coping skill for me. Right. And that's, that's self-awareness and honesty to yourself. Yeah. That's huge.
0: So approaching this 18 months, sober mark right that's such a huge milestone especially as it relates to the literal physical symptoms of getting over pause <laughs> right the no is no joke but there's also the mental and emotional component right like you've got to be looking at something or for something or hoping for something so like what does that hope in your recovery mean
1: so yeah hope and recovery for me um hope and recovery started really early on for me mm-hmm. um and it's it's been a very consistent theme for me because I have a a, a lot of, hope, which is funny because I used to never have hope for anything, right? I used to yeah. hope, I used to hope that I'm sorry, I used to expect the worst and hope that not that happened. Ah, right. Yeah. Because if you expect the worst and you get anything besides that, then it's a good day. Pleasant surprise. Right. Yeah. I'm very happy about this outcome. I hope that that's what happens. But now my, my hope is I get a lot of, I get a lot of hope in my drive from, from the rooms, a lot, mm. you know. I, it's, I, and yeah, you know, we trade one addiction for another, right? Like I'm addicted to recovery now. Hmm. It's 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 a positive addiction. It's like strange but makes sense, right? Yeah, you know, we have to have something, right? You know, right. we have we have to have something, um, you know, and and it's a good it's a good change. I get a lot of hope in the rooms hearing other people's stories. You know, people people who I fundamentally disagree with, right? Uh, just have nothing in common with aside from the fact that we're in recovery, right? So, that, be that any kind of viewpoints on political, religious, or otherwise, yeah. somebody that I would never say, okay, we see eye to eye, right? Sure. They will share, and they will share in a manner that I have to kind of suspend what they're saying. Because suddenly get, they feel human again. Right, <laughs> yeah. And and get the... The point of it, Mm -hmm. you know, there's one guy in particular that shares a lot um, and it's so far off of the way that I think that you would never assume that I could learn anything from this person. Right. Yeah. But literally every single time they share, I take something from every share they have. That's
0: awesome. And I think that takes some humility on your part, too. Right. Just to be able to position yourself in your heart, and your mind in such a way that you're willing to hear and learn something from someone you disagree with.
1: I I live by these ch- cheesy little metaphors and sayings. I say them all the time, right? Yeah. Um, and and in this instance, for me, it's I always say that I'm better than no man and capable of learning from all. Hmm. Um, say that again, but slower. I'm better than no man and capable of learning from all. Yeah, that's good. So um, I, I, I find that really important to me because then... It doesn't matter what this person's background is, right? It doesn't yeah. matter, like, f- to kind of clarify. I'm not a religious person, right? Yeah. So one of the things that kept me out of the rooms was the the thought that it was too religious for me. It was too yeah. culty for me. Hyper spiritual. Right? Exactly, and sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the cold hard truth of it. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it does feel a bit culty, especially in AA. Sure. So you would assume that somebody with my thought thought system. Wouldn't be able to learn something from somebody who's thumping their Bible inside of inside of a group, right? But they're actually some of the people I get some of the most out of. Hmm. Um, we completely fundamentally disagree on right. on what got us to the point we're at, but to me that really doesn't matter. Yeah, I could care less what it is that makes you stay sober, um, as long as it's working. As long as it's working, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amen to that. That's that's ultimately the only thing that matters.
0: I appreciate that. So in your experience with, uh, you know, the, all the 12-step groups that you've witnessed and been a part of, um, as well as the therapeutic groups, what do you feel like the main difference between the 12-step groups and the therapeutic groups are? Do you feel that both are necessary? I, absolutely. Uh,
1: I, think there's, I think there's a lot of differences between the two and, of course, a lot of similarities, right? 12-step yeah. um, groups are, are much looser. You know, they're. I mean, they have a structure that they kind of follow, but there's a lot more kind of rawness mm-hmm. to it, right? And usually, in a therapeutic group, you need somebody in the room to elicit rawness out of people, right? I facilitate that exactly. Yeah. Actually, I, I was talking about this. I, I I said this to Tim the other day. Um, I I was talking about your guys's position in this particular center, right? Um, and I I told him I said I don't envy your position because I can imagine it would be very easy to get jaded with what you do because Mm. you have so many people who are forced to be here. Right. That have a, have a certain, you know, chip on their shoulder and they can be very disruptive. Right. Right. But, but a lot of times myself included, those people really need to be reached. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, it has got to be very hard for people inside of these therapeutic settings to, to find a connection to bridge the gap between the people being forced to be there and the idea that they might actually have a problem that they might need to work on. Right. Um, and me personally, I was an IOP two times before I did IOP here. Yeah. Um, and I only think the, the only major difference between those pr- prior two times I was an IOP and the time I was here is this is the first time I was present mm. for IOP. Yeah. Um, I was, mandated to be here but i also made the choice to be mandated to be here you know right. i could have i could have there's always a choice
0: and, right well a yeah, court I, referral or not like there's yeah. always an internal choice to like right
1: own it well know? so i'm a drug court partic- participant yeah right uh, i if you were to stack all of us drug court participants together i have the least amount of charges yeah my charges did not necessitate being in drug court um my lawyer actually glossed over it he's like we have this option this option this option drug court we're not going to do that that's literally how he approached it. he said we're not going to do that and i was like what is that right and then he explained it in a negative connotation to me you know it's an intensive two-year minimum recovery-based program mm-hmm. tons of therapy um a lot of people fail out of it you will violate and i was like cool uh sign me up for that
0: that's <laughs> remarkable yeah yeah
1: because at that point at that point, I was in a bad. I was in a bad place. Yeah, I was in a bad place. I, uh, I was very depressed, and I was drinking very bad. Right. Um, and I could no longer deny to myself that this was a problem. Right, you know, mm-hmm. I had switched from functional alcoholism to, um, the really, really bad alcoholism as described in AA, yeah. um, and I, I couldn't lie. To myself anymore, right? And I made the decision not to lie to myself about it anymore. That honesty piece, yep. In that, in that office, Um, ironically, one of the most impactful things that ever happened to me in early sobriety um, was prior to my decision to go into drug court, Mm -hmm. right? So I actually came here for uh, an intake session with with Mandy, yep. And I told her my story, right? The whole thing, all of. All of the moving parts, all right. of the all of the ugly, right? And when I was done, because you know I needed some semblance of control, right? Mm-hmm. I asked her. I said, "So, um, what are we going to do with this? Um, when do I start rehab?" And at this time, I was two months sober and did not trust my sobriety. Yeah. Um, I said, "When are we going to start rehab?" And she said, "We're not starting rehab." And I was like, "Did you hear everything that I just said to you? Because what do you mean we're not going to rehab?" Right, yeah. And she said, "Well, you have a fundamental problem with yourself. Mm-hmm. What you need is therapy." Yeah. And um, at the time, I hadn't even mentioned to her that I was entering into drug court. Right. Um, I was still making that decision, mm-hmm. but I just knew that I needed help. And you know, it mm-hmm. was really impactful to me to hear from a therapist that my substance abuse was a was, was symptomatic of a greater problem. Yes. And the ability to learn that about myself right because I'd, I'd always been told what a pos i was you know right you're just a, a selfish piece of crap right um you're a bad person you're all of these horrible things right? horrible never, stigmatized right? ideas right. Yeah. right never that you know you are a sick person that needs to work on that right um that that had a Kind of like a psychic change for me. Absolutely, it it kind of flipped a switch, and I was like, because I had always I had always thought that, mm-hmm. but I'd always been told otherwise, right? By significant others, by the system. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it it was always drilled into me that that I have a selfish problem that I choose to do, and not that I have a greater issue that can be unlearned. Right, right. And, and ever since then, I, I kind of, I buried myself into it. I've never, thank you. And it's paying off. (laughs) Absolutely. In in spades. I've never, I've never sat inside of one of these rooms and BS any of my sessions inside of men's groups, recovery management, individual sessions. I mean, really, I was kind of frustrated when I first started here because I bounced through like four Therapist and I'm with Shelby now now I remember I was telling Shelby about this. I told her right to her face I was, I was like, I don't want to do this with you. Yeah, you know, I've gone through this This will be the fourth time I'm going through this and luckily Madeline sat in and right. really bridged that gap and tried because I trusted her Sure, And right?
0: already had that rapport built right. with another provider Ex-
1: exactly and so she told me that I could trust Shelby, right? And of course I didn't yeah, I'm not i am not going to trust her i yeah. you know, that's just that's how our brains are tuned, right? Um, but she did she did things right out the gate in that session with Madeline to, to garner trust. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that was really important. It was really important because it, it allowed me to just be authentic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and continue to work, work on these things because that a cornerstone of my sobriety is the fact that I won't, I, I won't BS anything. Yeah. Right? That it, honesty piece yeah. you've mentioned before. It's, it's tremendous. You know, the people that I see that are struggling um i won't say where uh, the people i see that are, that are struggling are the people that are lying mm-hmm. they're lying to themselves first and foremost and then they're lying to the people around them to try to get away with what they're doing and a lot of those lies are about what they're feeling and what they're going through right right because they're afraid to be vulnerable they're afraid to open up they're afraid of this terminal uniqueness that we all think we have that our problems are insurmountable and in ours alone. Right. And that we're the only ones experiencing this and you could never understand what I am going through because I'm the one going through it. You do not get that. Right. And unfortunately, I do. Mm-hmm. That, that's the... That. Yeah. Unfor- it, it's not a good... I mean, it's a good thing for helping people and for recovery that I do, right, and that everyone else in it does. Right. But it's unfortunate that whatever you're about to tell me, I've heard or experienced. It's not new It's not unique. Which honestly, you
0: know, know, uh, when you hear that first, it sounds like, oh, I could or should take offense to that or defense to that. But it's actually such a beautiful thought. It really is. Right? The commonality that we share in recovery is, I think, one of the greatest strengths.
1: You know, the opposite of addiction is connection, right? You hear that a lot around here. Um, And that's that, for me, what you just said is nailing, you hit the nail on the head. That's the beauty of it. Right. Because it does sound offensive. What I just said. To somebody in early recovery, and be like, <laughs> "You're not yeah, unique." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're not unique. And they're looking like, "Who's this soul?" Right, telling me I'm not unique. Well, I'm I'm you just with different skin. Right. Un- unfortunately, it is an unfortunate fact of the matter. Yeah. Uh, of course, we're individuals. Right. Sure. I'm different than a lot of people that I'm in the room with, Just like you right? were mentioning before. Yeah. Right. Different um, views, different opinions. Exactly, and that does not mean that we're not all the exact same. You know, uh, my sponsor did a great job. When he went through Bill W's story in the big book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I first off, I, I hit the sponsor jackpot. right? Yeah. I've got a great sponsor. Um, when he was going through Bill W's story, as we were reading it, he kept cutting off to interject how much he does not like Bill W. Right? He's like, I don't <laughs> how much he doesn't relate. Yeah, with Bill W, he's like, look at this, this guy's a doing this with his life and he's doing this and he's selling stocks he's like what do me and this guy have in common right right that was that was the th- the thematic that he went with while we were reading bill's story mm-hmm. so that at the very end he could be like we literally have everything in common yeah because That's the powerful. point was is that our lives might be different right but it's the exact same right we're all anytime you sit in a room with any anybody going through this whether they're open like I am or they're turtled up like you see a lot of people when they first come in, we're thinking the same thing. We're having the same struggles. We have the same trials and tribulations that we have to overcome. It's just breaking through that shell to get people to realize that because that connectivity, the opposite of addiction is connection is, is a fundamental, it's a quintessential part of this whole thing.
0: Amen. And amen, dude. So if we could wrap up then um, with a, with a single sentence, what final advice would you give a listener who might be struggling right now to end the episode?
1: Stop lying. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of advice you can give, right? But if you stop bullshit, you're going to get somewhere.
0: Yeah, that's huge, man. Chris, thank you for sharing your story. It's no an problem. honor thank to you. hear it. You've got a lot of wisdom packed in there, man. <laughs> You've got a lot of wisdom. <laughs> thanks, a lot. I, I am excited for those you're building relationships with who will be you know, first-hand witnesses to that. You've already been an encouragement to so many folks in the program here at the Willow Center as, as well as in your, in your own life, and I'm, I'm thankful. So thanks for including me in your story, too.
1: Thank you very much. This was an absolute pleasure.
0: All right, that's been episode five of the Uniquely Better Life podcast here at the Willow Center. We'll be back next month with episode number six. Take it easy.